The reading today is from Revelations 2, verses 18 to 29. Revelations 2, verses 18 to 29. It's on the church, in the church Bible, on page 1,234. 1,234. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling so I will cast her on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely, unless they repent of her ways, and I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learnt Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you. Only hold on to what you have until I come. To him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I will also give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Oh, so you're probably going to have to correct my pronunciation here. But um, Kierkegaard, is that right? Yeah, <laughs> reasonable. <laughs> I speak like a Swede, not a Dane. Um, there's a, a Danish philosopher called Kierkegaard, and he told a story about ducks. And he said that there was a, a community made up entirely of ducks. And every Sunday, they would waddle out of their houses and waddle down the main street where the ducks lived. And they would waddle into church. They would waddle into pews and squat there. And the duck preacher would waddle to the front, open the duck Bible and say, ducks, you can fly. And the congregation, because they were a bit like you lot, would say, amen. And he would say, and with your wings, you can soar up. Nothing can stop you. Ducks, you can fly. And the ducks would say, and then they would get out of their pews 
and waddle home. Now, why am I using this analogy? Well, this morning we've had a uh, reading which is about a compromised church. And on the surface, this looks like it could quite easily be a sermon about sexual morality. Um, I'm not going down that route this morning. It's not because I don't. I hold fairly orthodox views on the whole issue, and I'd be delighted to tell you why if you ever want to talk about that. But this morning, I don't feel really that that's what this passage is saying. I see the sexual immorality mentioned as a symptom of a different condition. And um, the issue we're going to look at today is that of tearing down our idols, the compromise that we put in place. I wish I actually had a different message. I think the sex one would be easier. But I think, my dear ducks, that God wants you to fly home this morning. It's holy ground so we better pray. I'm going to ask you to touch your ears. He or she who has ears, let them hear what the Spirit has to say to the church. Father God, this morning, we really need to hear from you because we're fallible. And for me, because preaching's frightening. Father God, please work in our lives so that we can fly home better equipped to be the people you want us to be and to allow you to be the Lord that you ought to be. Amen. Okay, if you turn now to the reading we had this morning, Revelation 2, starting at verse 18, and we're going to look at the passage systematically, and we're going to look at it under four headings, authority, affirmation, admonition, strange word, but I had to get all A's, and adjustment. Okay, authority. Um, If you look at chapter 1, verse 9 to 20, John sees someone like a son of man walking among seven lampstands, which represent the churches, and in his hands he has seven stars. Now, pagan Greece and Rome worshipped the stars, the moon, and the sun. These were deities to them. And here in Revelation, we see Jesus just carrying the stars about, doing with them whatever he wills. It's a massive cosmological and theological statement that he's making here, that Jesus has authority, ownership, and power over the whole cosmos. And the overarching theme of Revelation isn't trying to identify figures who might Uh, might or might not feature in the end times. It is about the cosmological lordship of Jesus. That is where we are starting. He has the authority. That is the start and the end point over time, space, and matter. So what's really important today is that we listen to the one walking among us who holds that power. To the church in Thyatira, Jesus is revealed, if you look at verse 18, as having blazing eyes. Now, a member of this congregation um, last week said to me that uh, they'd had a picture for us, and it was of a lighthouse searching its beam around all the darkness in us 
and in our world. Now, as you know, the searchlight on a lighthouse is there because without it, we would be in deadly danger. If the things hidden in darkness were not revealed, there would be deadly consequences. And when the gaze of Jesus is directed into our darkness, it is to save us, not to destroy us. God longs for us to be secure in him. Now, I was taught that preaching should disturb the comfortable and comfort the disturbed. And we see that happening in our letter to the church in Thyatira. And I believe that God wants to disturb us today, church to move us out of our comfort zones into a place where he can be Lord of all, including this church in Baston Hill. So moving on to affirmation, verse 19. Thyatira was a small town. It was on a route to another place. And there was a lot of good going on there. It was known for its love of one another, for its faith, for its service, for its perseverance during hard times, and for its progressive activity. Does that sound familiar to you? Yeah, it does to me. Yeah, <laughs> a vigorous, growing church. It seems to me that of all the letters we've encountered so far, this one perhaps most likens us. There's a lot going on here that pleases the Lord. Each of the churches uh, in the letters is very different. A bit like, I suppose, the diversity in the Church of England today. In Pergamon, we saw that the, the world had squeezed the church into its mold. But where a church is known for its vigor and growth, the enemy has a different tactic. He tries to ruin things, not by pressure from the outside, but from poison within. That's a quote from Whittock who wrote a really great commentary on Revelation called I Saw Heaven Opened, Poison Within in an Active Church. Which brings us to what the Son of God is saying in verses 20 to 23, admonishment. Um, in Thyatira, there's something deadly at the heart of the church, something that Jesus is uncompromising about. They're tolerating Jezebel. A woman who, we're told, has set herself up as an authority in the church and is destroying the life of the fellowship there. Now, we don't know who this was. Some people say it was an actual person, a kind of self-styled prophetic figure who was influencing the church into idolatrous ways, a symptom of which was sexual immorality. You can kind of imagine it, can't you? Oh, me? Oh, well, I'm just called to be an irritant to what's going on here. This church has got to be like I want it to be. That's what I'm here for. You can imagine it, can't you? Um, but actually, I'm not quite sure if that's what the passage is getting at. Um, I wonder if it's metaphorical, uh, the spirit of Jezebel. Jezebel, if you remember, was queen in Israel um, during the time of Elijah the prophet. She, the scripture tells us she was a wicked woman. And uh, she was a pagan daughter of a pagan king who married the king of Israel. And first she won him over to idolatrous ways. And through him, the whole of the nation of Israel was compromised in their worship of God. Compromised 
by a belief system which was about me and my needs and my desires. Now, she did uh, preside over, I suppose, the Canaanite fertility cult of Baal. And that did involve sexual immorality as part of its worship. And Israel was influenced in all sorts of ways. But I think I would want to make clear that there's nowhere in Scripture that indicates she's a seductress as such. She's far more deadly than that. She is poisoning the heart of Israel because of her idolatry, because she's promoting a belief system which compromises on putting the Lord at the center of our lives, just as Herod did, as we saw in our film this morning. So I believe that this passage is seeing sexual immorality as a symptom of something else. It's a subject that's addressed in the first commandment, have no gods before me. You know, in our sort of godless age, that just sounds silly. We don't believe in lots of gods. We're not polytheists. But let's be honest about this. There's a lot at stake when we think that we don't put other gods before God. Idolatry is the most discussed problem in the whole of scripture. Church, behind every sin you struggle with, behind every sexual temptation, behind every discouragement you're dealing with, behind every lack of purpose and passion you may feel in your life, behind every dissatisfaction you have with this fellowship here is a false God. And until that God is dethroned and Jesus takes his rightful place, we will not have the victory. I don't know if you've heard of this psychology experiment, psychiatry experiment, sorry, called the Three Christs of Ypsilanti. Um, it's, uh, Ypsilanti is a um, mental hospital in America, and a psychiatrist had a number of patients who all thought they were God. And he thought, wouldn't it be an interesting thing to put them all together to see if that somehow corrected these delusions they have about themselves? And the dialogue went something like this. You must bow down and worship me. I will not worship you. I do not worship a mere man, for I am the Lord God. Who told you you were God? Well, he did. No, I didn't. It sounds comical, doesn't it? But actually, we all think we're God in the flesh. The psychiatrist conducting this experiment concluded that there weren't three Christs in Ypsilanti, there were four, because he was playing God with their lives. He had put himself up as someone who could put people together and try and manipulate what happened. And he repented of that. We think, don't we, that we're the center of the universe, that our preferences are a priority, that our views are an authority, that our success is the most important. Whether to serve the king or queen of the kingdom of me or the Lord God of the universe is a daily choice for us all. You shall have no gods before me. When a false god comes, God's message throughout scripture is always this, choose. He got Gideon to choose, didn't he, when he asked him to tear down his father's idols. 
choose, choose life. Because, you know, the consequences of being God in the kingdom of you are pretty horrible. Look at verses 21 to 23. Jesus is compromising, uncompromising, sorry, in uh, his assertion about the, what will happen if he is not Lord. If the church doesn't repent of the spirit of Jezebel that's in each of us, horrible things will happen. You see, the thing about idols, right, is they demand sacrifices. They will demand that you turn over to them the things that most matter to you so that they're exhumed by that idol's demands. Your money, your children, your marriage, your integrity, your body, your mind, your soul, they'll be destroyed if idols get their way. If the spirit of Jezebel has its way in this church, we will be destroyed. The wonderful things that God is doing among us will be compromised if we refuse to acknowledge that God has the authority. In contrast, when God is God, we see a God who sacrificed himself for us. That's the difference. God sacrificed himself for you. And his message today is the message that he gave to the church in Thyatira. Repent. Repent. Put him back on the throne where he belongs. I was filling my uh, car windscreen wash thing the other day. And as you know, you have to pour it down a tiny little funnel from a huge bottle. And as I was pouring, um, uh, Brian offered to do it actually, but you know, I said sisters do it for themselves. Thank you, Brian. But as I was filling the uh, funnel, I, I felt that God was saying to me that there is a funnel poised above this building, a funnel from heaven. And there is so much in it that God wants to channel down onto us. But the funnel has a blockage. Like in Thyatira, it is blocked because, in spite of such a lot of good, there's idolatry. We're putting ourselves up as God in some areas of our lives and in some areas of our fellowship together. Now, I'm not uh, saying this because I think that you lot are doing things or saying things that, that might relate to this. I, I feel that this is what God was saying, that there's, there's a blockage there. And what the spirit of Jezebel perhaps is doing is blocking God's blessing because of a lack of honor and respect, a lack of acknowledgement of who is in charge. Now, I don't mean Tim, and I don't mean the PCC. I mean the authority that God has set up. If we look at Romans 13, there's no authority except from God. No authority whatsoever except from God. There are no self-appointed prophets. There's no wisdom that isn't discerned by the body. There is no blessing without a spirit of honoring one another. It's all about the body. 
and the way God has set up the authority of the church to deal with that. You see, God calls people to lead a church. That call is not just because, say, Tim applies for a job, wants the job, gets the job because he's impressive at interview. It's not that easy. It's discerned by the whole body. When we get people on the PCC, we don't just pick anyone who is uh, <laughs> desperate enough to volunteer. We look for the five-fold anointing that we see in scripture. We look for apostolic, prophetic, teaching gifts, and everything that will feed the life of the body. It's about the body. There are no lone ranger ministers in the church of God, and all authority comes from him. And I believe that this morning he wants to shed light on the areas where perhaps we can't quite get to grips with how we should live together. I'm not taking you somewhere I haven't been church. I have struggled over the last few months to come to terms with the um, strange institution that is the Church of England, the flawed institution that we all love um, so much, um, both locally and wider. It's been a struggle for me. And to save you all the hard lessons I have learned, <laughs> I would want to say this. Romans 13 verse 7 is the best bit of advice I could possibly give you to help you to not inhabit what I've had to inhabit. Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another. Build honor and respect into your conversation, into your confrontations, into your marriages, into your giving for church, into your work conflicts, into your family dynamics, into your home group discussions. Repent, church. Let's put Jesus back on the throne of Christ church and await the outpouring that he has for us. Because church is coming. It is coming. But it can't operate unless we honor one another. I wonder this morning if you know in your heart that perhaps you, there are people or situations where you haven't behaved with the honor and respect that God might want you to. If that's you, could I just suggest in a very low-key way, you perhaps go and share the peace with that person this morning. It might be somebody that you haven't spoken to for a while or that you tend to avoid. Please just go this morning as a sign between you and God that you want to change that, that you want honor and respect for God's authority and for one another to be at the heart of everything that we do at Christ Church. Okay, finally, and briefly, on to our final point, adjustment. Jesus warns those influenced by the spirit of Jezebel that we have to repent. For the rest of the church, he simply says this, hold on fast. Keep up the good work. Because church, God has an adventure planned not just for us at Christ Church, but for the whole of the human race throughout history. So hang in there. We're going through a period of intense shift not just in Christchurch, but in the whole of the Western world in particular. Nothing is the same anymore. It can feel bewildering. We can be frightened. We can long for the security we used to know. It's uncharted territory. Even if we are contributing positively to the life of church, we can feel frightened and think, where is this going? I, I just don't get this. That's okay, because God knows. God knows. And his plan is to reconcile all things to himself through Christ. 
If we hang on in there, this passage tells us we will be stakeholders in the final and decisive victory of God. I want to end with a prayer that I've been praying for some time now about the bewilderment that we might feel. It's Lord God, we have no idea where we're going. We do not see the road ahead of us. We cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do we really know ourselves. And the fact that we are following your will does not mean we actually are doing so. But we believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And we hope that we have that desire in all that we are doing. We know that if we have, you will lead us by the right road, though we may know nothing about it. Therefore, we will trust you always, though we may seem to be lost in the shadow of death. We will not fear, for you are with us, and you will never leave us to face our perils alone. Amen.